0: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on the world headquarters of Common Sense. It is, of course, Talk Radio. We've reached the end of another startling week in the dangerous world of international journalism. The government are engulfed in a sleaze row following the resignation of under fire MP Owen Patterson, who claims he's been forced out of the cruel world of politics. Those are his words, not mine. And Labour are labouring under the misapprehension. It's nothing to do with them. Um, of course, apart from the fact that uh, their former MP, Claudia Webb, has narrowly avoided the jail sentence for threatening to throw acid in someone's face. But no one in the House of Commons seems to be too bothered about that. Strangely enough. Meanwhile, there's lots of talk of revolts, backbench plots and humiliation for Boris Johnson. We shall take the temperature of our political landscape and the quagmire this morning with John Rental, chief political commentator from The Independent. 0344 499 1000. There's plenty of stories to talk about with him. Coming up later, we're heading north of the border with Stuart Weir to get the latest from the climate crisis. Apparently, they haven't solved it yet. And Greta Thunberg is leading a march of the youths. Uh, later on because that's bound to make a huge difference isn't it we'll also be talking to top barrister jerry hayes on the news that just one in 15 crimes ends up in court that's a charge or summons rate of just 6.5 percent well done everyone uh, the justice system along with everyone else in this country really does seem to be creaking uh dr tony hinton is here too after researchers have isolated a gene that doubles the risk of respiratory failure From COVID 19, and there are, as I've been suggesting for months, genetic factors that make some people more susceptible than others. Now, this is the kind of information that we can actually use about the uh, virus because it now would appear that there is a difference in how some people get it, some people die from it. Some people don't really feel anything at all, having been infected. Plus, Rob Clark will bring us the latest from the world of the armed forces we help him to launch the Veterans Rail Card. As ever, of course, we need to hear from you. What are you doing this weekend? Are you celebrating Guy Fawkes or have the killjoys killed it off? And you're not allowed to have any fireworks. What are your kids doing? 344 It's Friday, of course, so it's also time for the Perrier Awards. An homage to my brilliance in broadcasting this week. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest great radio station on the planet. It is of course Talk Radio Mid Morning with Mike Graham Talk Radio Now the front pages this morning are chock full uh, of stories about the Tories uh, you might not be surprised to hear uh, PM faces party backlash after suspension U-turn on the times the Guardian has got Tories plunged into crisis after sleaze rules U-turn uh, the i newspaper says day of chaos in Downing Street uh, it all does look rather grim for Boris Johnson but of course it's not as if he's not used to it looking rather grim. This, this week started with him, um, you know, straddling the world like a colossus, talking about uh, being strapped to a doomsday machine uh, and somehow fi- finally, single-handedly stopping the climate crisis. Uh, at the end of the week, not so much. Let's talk to John Rental to find out what he makes of it all. John, a very good morning to
1: you. Good morning, Mike.
0: So, I mean, it's a, it's a long way, isn't it, from the doomsday machine to a U-turn and sleaze in Parliament, but somehow we've managed to get them all into the same story.
1: Yeah. And um, you could see how uh, Boris Johnson uh, is sort of pretending I was distracted by more important things. Right. Uh, you know, saving the world, saving the planet. Um, so I wasn't properly concentrating when uh, when these these fools <laughs> came to me with this ridiculous idea. And right. so, I sort of, and I, so I, instead
0: I of it. waving them away, he just kind of nodded sagely and they went off and <laughs> thought he said yes. Right.
1: Well, it's it's an absolute travesty of what yeah. actually happened. I mean, obviously, uh, it was such a bad idea that it would only have been pursued if the prime minister was was actually hundred percent behind it. I, I'm sure it was Boris Johnson's own idea.
0: It sounds uh, like one of his ideas, doesn't it?
1: Well, exactly. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, Owen Paterson and Owen Paterson's friends were clearly uh, pushing for it, uh, but Boris Johnson uh, didn't need to do it and uh, completely failed to see how badly it would all. Uh, or turn out. Yeah. So it's not I mean, down the I mean big like day.
0: yeah and like all of these things which are sort of you know badly thought out and not really thought through. I mean I don't really understand what Owen Patterson was worried about because even if he had been forced to have a by-election I mean he's got a 23,000 majority I think isn't he so what would he have been risking by uh, by allowing himself to be suspended?
1: Well he hasn't accepted that he's done anything wrong. I mean that's uh, that's his big problem. Um, and uh, he continues to protest his innocence. He, he he still portrays himself as the victim. And, of course, people do feel uh, extremely sorry for him because of his, uh, yeah. his personal tragedy. Sure. Uh, but uh, I'm afraid, you know, the point about an independent standards process is that you've got to accept the result whether you agree with it or not.
0: Right. And the idea that you don't accept it because you don't agree with it is rather ridiculous, isn't it? And it's like, well, well, you know, it was all it was all going so well until you decided to find me in breach of the standards authority, and now now I don't think you're doing a very good job.
1: Well, I mean, I think there is a there is a question uh, about whether the standards process is is uh, perfect, and it probably isn't. Uh, whether there should be another layer of uh, appeal to a different uh, tribunal, uh, those are all perfectly. Uh, sensible suggestions which ought to be looked at, but they should not be confused with the case of uh, Owen Patterson. You can't change the rules uh, part of the way through mm. a process. Like no.
0: This. And I think also most people out in the big wide world and Julia Hartley Brewer was mentioning, uh, you know, the ordinary people who don't actually obsess about politicians in the same way that you and I do. Um, Most people don't consider working as an MP uh, to be a very easy job to be fired from, because we've seen so many examples of MPs who have got up to all sorts of things, much worse than anything Owen Paterson did and continue to remain as an MP. And you'd have to say Claudia Webb's one of them. I find it quite amazing that people are more worried about Owen Paterson uh, than Claudia Webb.
1: No I mean I think I don't think there's a there's a comparison Claudia Claude, <coughs> sorry Claudia Webb has not uh, tried to overturn the uh, decision of an independent body uh, by no, appealing but she's been to found guilty a, a no, but hang on,
0: John. no but she's been found guilty of a crime yeah. right and she's and appealing she's been, against and she's, she's been a, sentenced she's protest- and she should resign surely
1: she's protesting her innocence and is a, and is using the 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 legal process to uh, to appeal I mean I suspect she may not end up appealing Uh, She's been found guilty
0: of threatening to throw acid in somebody's face. I don't really think it's comparable to taking some money from a food company.
1: No, no. But but the point is, is the process. She is entitled to uh, appeal against that decision to another court. What she's not entitled to do is have a uh, have a decision overturned by a committee of uh, of Labour MPs, which is what's happened in the... Yeah, Owen but this Patterson.
0: is but this is the problem with politicians as they are seen by the people. And so this kind of attitude that that either Claudia Webb or he, Owen Paterson, has, either one of them, you can take your pick, are not doing the job any great favours. They're certainly not uh, making uh, the MPs in Parliament who are still there look particularly virtuous. And the problem for me yeah. is, is this the phrase is not innocent until proven guilty uh, twice after an appeal. It's innocent until proven guilty. She's been proven guilty. She's been through the court system. You know, she might want to appeal. But, no, but she, but she has. The, she's been convicted she hasn't of a crime.
1: The court, the court procedure.
0: Yeah, but she's been convicted of a crime, John. Surely that should no, mean that should no, mean There is she, no
1: comparison between the two.
0: No, there um, isn't. No, but there isn't. But why then is everybody so worked up about Owen Paterson, but not about her?
1: Because in Owen Paterson's case, the government, the government, the governing party, the prime minister himself, were trying to overturn an independent verdict right uh, on his case uh, and subject it to a party political yes yes uh, but still,
0: you still you must see surely that people outside of politics will think it's a lot worse tra- threatening to throw acid in somebody's face
1: well yes but if the, if if that is the final decision of the courts then she will have to stand well, it down. Is, though, it is know. the
0: final decision of the courts. She no, now to. it's wants not the
1: to, final decision, Mike. It, it there is. is still an appeal process.
0: Well, I think the process in Parliament should be this: if you get found guilty of a serious crime, of which she has, you are obliged yes, to step that down. Is the process. You are obliged to step down and have a by-election. And if you want to no, run no. again once you've been cleared, then let's yes. let's do that. But she should Mike, not be sitting there taking my money and your money after what she's been found guilty
1: that- of but that is the process the the thing is that the legal pr- process has not been uh, has not yet completed when it's completed um then then you can uh, then you can complain about
0: well she will want to keep it going for as long as possible no doubt so she'll be looking forward to an appeal reaching the court system sometime in 2010 uh, sorry 2030 you know, so that she can just well, sit there. She shouldn't be. There should, the, the, the problem with Parliament right now, and the Lords is, is, is worse, in fact, because you can't even make people leave the Lords when they've been convicted and lost an appeal. I'm thinking of people like Lord Watson, you know, and Geoffrey Archer. You know, all of these people still sit there taking public money, having been convicted of crimes which, if we did them, we'd be behind bars.
1: I think, yeah, yeah. Mike, I think you're trying to distract from the
0: issue at hand. No, I started talking about the issue at hand and I want to still talk about it, but I find it extraordinary that nobody's talking about Claudia Webb at the same time.
1: Lots of people are talking about Claudia Webb. She is not she is not a, a question of the prime minister's judgment and the prime minister's decision to try and overturn. And independent standards. Uh, no, standards. and I'm not. I'm certainly not seeking
0: to distract you from that, John, because I know that this is meat and drink to you, and I'm very happy to to discuss why Boris Johnson is such a complete and utter buffoon that he thought this was a good idea. You know, you won't get any argument from me about that. There's no question. Good. The big question is uh, how damaging is it to him, and will he, as usual, slip away uh, in the middle of the night, and everyone will blame somebody else.
1: Well, no, it is damaging to him. I think that's abs- there's no doubt about it. I mean, that's why he did the U-turn. I mean, what would have been really, really damaging would be if he'd just ploughed ahead and tried to uh, get Pervezim off yes. uh, altogether. Uh, I think that would have been that would have been difficult because his party was beginning to beginning to revolt against it. I mean, that's why he only had a majority of of 18 in the crucial vote on uh, on Wednesday. Right. Uh, so he had to bow to the the inevitable on that. I mean, he's he's ended up. With the, the, the second worst of three possible worlds, uh, in that he you know he tried to do something stupid and he's now at least uh, accepted that it was wrong, uh, and and reversed it. But I mean he need, he needn't have got into this situation in the first place. And I think I think the fact that he tried to uh, is going to damage yeah. him, just as he tried briefly to, uh, to to exclude himself from the isolation, the COVID isolation yeah. rules, uh, in July. Uh, I think people notice that, you know, his first instinct is to try and dodge, uh, dodge the rules,
0: yeah. and also his his first instinct is almost to, is to protect his mates, and and I'm afraid that always gets you into trouble, particularly if your mates are a bit on the dodgy side, uh, which Owen Patterson uh, would appear to be.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure how much he was actually concerned about Owen Patterson. I mean, that that's I think that's uh, implying a bit too much uh, generosity of spirit to 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 <laughs> Boris Johnson. I think. I think he's actu- his actual motivation was that he can't stand the uh, standards commissioner Catherine Stone uh, because uh, because Catherine Stone found against his uh, mustique holiday oh yes uh, or at least said that that wasn't uh, that wasn't uh, strictly in conformity with the rules uh, she was actually overturned by the by the standards committee which is chaired by a labor mp so uh, you know, there is a fair process that goes on there. But but the Prime Minister was very upset, I think. And uh, will she have
0: anything to do with the next... holiday wallp- called into question. And will she have anything to do with the next wallpaper uh, investigation then?
1: Well, I'm not sure that the wallpaper will, will end up on, on, on her desk because uh, I'm not sure whether that... I don't think that is... Uh, relevant to him as an MP because that's to do with his uh, his residence as prime minister but we shall see there may be there may be an MP's uh, standards uh, issue there in which case you know you could see that he was trying to possibly uh, undermine uh, Catherine Stone's uh, uh, credibility before uh, before it came to. to.
0: So what do we do now then do we find ourselves in yet another by-election that Owen Patterson has caused then?
1: Yeah, well, there will be a by-election, but I mean, I suspect uh, the, it, it will be a Conservative hold. I mean, it's a very safe Conservative seat. I mean, there's some talk of the opposition parties uh, getting together and uniting behind an, an independent uh, candidate, anti-sleaze candidate in a in a white uh, jacket uh, like Martin Bell, yeah. uh, who stood against Neil Hamilton. Uh, but I, I think that I get the sense that that both Labour and the Lib Dems think that's that's too difficult. They won't be able to agree that.
0: No, I don't think they will. There's also talk, as they're not in the David Amis constituency um, in Essex, of some form of um, uh, standing down going on. But it seems a bit unclear well, whether yeah. whether or not that's going ahead.
1: Yeah, no. The uh, the main parties are not are not standing in uh, in Essex, and I think that's quite I think that's quite right because I don't think you should allow uh, a terrible killing like that to change the party. Uh, composition
0: of the House of Commons. Yeah, no, absolutely right. But I mean, of course, the other problem we have is that all of these uh, sort of so-called uh, good MPs who have been speaking out, Caroline Lucas was on Question Time last night bagging on about Boris Johnson and how sleazy it all was. Uh, she seems to have forgotten that she was found guilty of breaching parliamentary rules by giving a tour of the House of Commons in exchange for 150 quid. So, I mean, you know, they're all at it, really, <laughs> aren't they?
1: Well, no, they're not all at it. That, that sounds like a rather minor uh, breach. Minor? Oh, you think? <laughs> Compared with well, what? Surely I've a
0: breach. No, a breach is a breach. It's not about how much money. Surely, is it the principle, John? You just said that.
1: Yeah, no, I, I accept that. But I mean, there are more serious uh, breaches. And, le- and well, and like, lessons. well, like
0: threatening to throw right. acid in somebody's face—that's a lot of breach.
1: Well, that's not a breach of the rules as an MP. Is no, so? isn't? well, that's,
0: and that's my point. That's the point. The way that people see politics is through my eyes, right? Because most people agree with me, John, that this is a ridiculous way to run an organisation, that you can commit <laughs> a serious crime and sit there happily. Uh, but if you've been found guilty of breaching some kind of uh, parliamentary procedure, uh, you're out.
1: No, well, I don't want to repeat myself. uh, Claudine Webb's uh, legal process has not yet completed. Well, that's
0: that's certainly news for anyone who gets found guilty of a crime, sent to prison and is appealing, but I still normally, as normally people would be, is sitting in prison waiting for the appeal to come through. You're still found guilty. You're still a criminal.
1: Well, you would be sitting... Well, except I don't think that they sent... The sentence in uh, Claudia Webb's case is a, is a prison sentence. It's a
0: custodial sentence which has been suspended, which means it is a uh, prison sentence. No,
1: it's a, so it's been suspended. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a suspended sentence. It's, it's a, not prison a prison sentence, sentence
0: which has been and, suspended. If she yeah. commits any act which breaches her bail condition, she'll go to jail.
1: Yeah, that's fine. But she shouldn't. Uh, she yeah, she shouldn't be in the House of
0: all. Commons. I don't see how hard it is for you to agree with that.
1: The courts, the courts have not not put her in jail. So yeah, so they have you, put her
0: in jail. They've suspended the sentence. Anyway, let's move on from that. Let's talk about what goes on now for the rest of uh, uh, of the week. Why are they having another another um, um, week off next week?
1: They're, well, they're having three days off, uh, or no, two days off next week. Um, uh, I think because they didn't have a half term break for some reason. I can't, I
0: can't really? quite... They don't seem it. to have been in much, though. I mean, they've had the break for the uh, for COP26, they've had the break for the, uh, for the conference season, they've had the break for the summer, uh, they've had the yeah. break... I thought they did have a break in September, in October at some time or other, didn't they?
1: Yes, they did. Yeah, so, I mean, no,
0: no, they're not exactly the no, hardest working people in showbiz at the moment.
1: No, no, because they're working extremely hard in their constituencies, Mike. As you know, they've got an awful lot of constituency uh, business to deal with. Mm. Uh, the fact that MPs are not in Parliament, as you well know, does not mean that they're not... Working no, it doesn't.
0: It. it doesn't. But again, it's all about what it looks like, John. It's all about how people perceive politics. And at the moment, the trust in politicians is at a very low level. And these kinds of events do not in any way encourage people to think anything better of them.
1: Yeah, no, but I think the serious thing is that the Prime Minister instructed his MPs, his Tory MPs, to vote against a standards, an independent standards uh, verdict on a, on a Tory MP. And I, yes. I think that the... Uh, you know, I agree that most people have a very low opinion of politicians generally, but I would imagine that this uh, incident will mean that people will have a lower opinion of the Conservative Party and a lower opinion of of Boris Johnson as a result. And well, has I, anyone I, done I a poll this morning?
0: I'm sure you're, norm- you're normally very hot on these things. Has anyone done a poll on them yet? Because
1: yeah, Yes, there's, been- <laughs> yes, there's a poll in the Times this morning, Mike. Tell, them, tell, them them. One, tell me the, what it the, says. What well, is what I have the, you the, on, the, John? The stories do- have been reduced to a one-point lead.
0: A one-point lead.
1: It's not a it's not very significant movement. But, I mean, it's, it's early days yet. I think I think Boris Johnson will pay a price. I think the, and the Tory party will pay a price.
0: Well, I think the Tory party Absolutely. should be paying a price I, I in should. any event for not being Tories. I mean, that's the price they should be paying because all that nonsense up at COP26 uh, where we, uh, you know, we're all strapping ourselves to a doomsday machine. I mean, it was all very um, interesting theatre. Rishi Sunak talking about getting FTSE 100 companies to sign up to some green agenda. I mean, none of it is conservative uh, with a small C, never mind a large C. Well,
1: I mean, you will be delighted then to observe that the Reform Party, which is uh, which is what the Brexit Party is now called, yeah. is has gone up in the polls slightly from uh, I think three percent to five percent. Well, my mate so Richard Tyson evidence- will be
0: very happy about that.
1: Yeah, there is some evidence that, uh, that that right-wing Tories are not happy with the way that the, the party is going and they're looking for the obvious alternative.
0: Well, that's right. But, I mean, until uh, and, 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 and until anything actually happens within the party itself, I suppose, that's always going to be a tricky one, isn't it? Because smaller parties do struggle, even in by-elections, to do particularly well. But then Richard Tice is running yeah. um, in James Brokenshire's seat. So, I mean, that would be an interesting yeah. one as well. But, I mean, seriously, Boris Johnson... Do you see this damaging him enough that it means he doesn't any longer lead the party at some point?
1: Well, well he's obviously not going to lead the party at some point. Uh, but And I think this uh, will do sufficient damage to bring that point um, a bit earlier than it would otherwise have been. But I mean, the, the point is, the other thing about Boris Johnson, of course, we know, is that he's incredibly resilient. He bounces back.
0: From, yeah. I mean, he's come uh, back from worse than this, hasn't he?
1: Yeah no, and uh, but I think this is I think this is bad for him. I think it, I think he did himself unnecessary damage by standing by uh, Dominic Cummings uh for so long last year.
0: Right.
1: Um and you know although that didn't uh, that didn't stop him uh, taking the lead in the opinion polls. I think he'd be in a better position now if he hadn't uh, made those mistakes. Mm.
0: Yeah. Oh, I think so. But the trouble is, he's he's in such a good position and has been in such a good position. I mean, the last poll I looked at, I think there was still nine points ahead. So, you know, in the end, he always seems to survive this kind of thing. But I mean, what do you think is the plot that's going on around him?
1: Well, I don't think think there's any plot. I think uh, there are people complaining about the the chief whip, uh, Mark Spencer, for uh, for bullying them into voting for uh, the indefensible. Yeah. Uh, on Wednesday night, but actually what they, they should be directing their anger to the prime, towards the prime minister. And I, I think they know that they know it was Boris Johnson's decision uh, and they blame him for it, but they don't, they, you know, they don't want to, uh, to criticize the prime minister yeah. directly. And uh, I guess- but I think he, I think he's got real problems with the, with, with conservative MPs because, you know, when it comes to the crunch, when it comes to the point where the opinion polls suggest that Boris Johnson is a liability to the party, he will have uh, no loyalty to fall back on. He, I mean, uh, it was bad enough before, but I mean, after Wednesday night, I think uh, I think he's going to be terribly isolated uh, when the end comes, and I'm not. Sh- and I think the end is going to come slightly sooner than it would otherwise mm. have
0: done. Okay still not as isolated as the leader of the opposition, who's actually literally isolated, um, watching <laughs> <laughs> watching Angela Rader doing another sterling effort on uh, Wednesday, the Prime Minister's questions. I mean, he must be thinking yes. that he's missed all of it. He's missed the Tory sleeves row. He's missed the climate gate. Uh, he's missed the Owen Passage. I mean, he's just. I mean, people will forget he even exists at this point.
1: Yeah, well, and next week's recess means that he misses uh, Prime Minister's questions because uh, Parliament won't be sitting on right. Wednesday. Right. So, uh, yeah, no, he's going to be invisible until the week after. Um, uh, yeah, I think he must be pretty, uh, uh, pretty irritated about that. He must be sitting Angela there thinking, did rather well.
0: well, she did. And he must be sitting there thinking, what have I done to deserve this? I mean, literally, I mean, he can't win for losing, can he?
1: No, that's right. And it's the fifth time he's had to
0: isolate. I know. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Anyway, listen, uh, we'll speak again soon, John. Have a good weekend. Thank you very much indeed. John Rental, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent. Uh, Always a good row to have with him. Uh, There's always something that he doesn't uh, agree with me about. Um, But I'm not buying the fact that Boris Johnson is now somehow uh, on a shoogly peg. Uh, and he's out of uh, out of luck with uh, being Prime Minister for quite some time to come. I just think he'll shake it off. I think he'll dust himself down and he'll carry on. And most people, I think, will look at, upon this Owen Paterson debacle. Uh, There's just more evidence that MPs are up to their necks in sleaze, up to their necks uh, in looking after their own uh, self-interest. And, of course, Claudia Webb. I mean, come on. She should just walk away, shouldn't she? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, I've been saying for quite some time, and uh, I've spoken to many doctors about this. One of the most reasonably interesting things that we should be finding out about COVID, because it's been around for long enough now, is why it has so many differing effects on so many different people. Some people get COVID, don't even know they've got it. Asymptomatic. Some people get it and are very ill with it, recover. Some people get it, haven't end up having to go into hospital. Some people get it and end up actually dying. So let's talk uh, now to Dr. Tony Hinton, retired surgeon, to get his view of this latest story in which they found some kind of genetic code which makes you more likely to be more damaged by COVID if you get it. Tony, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. I'm I'm quite sort of pleased. I've been banging on about this. idea of of genetic differences for a long time. And now they finally found something which would suggest, anyway, uh, why some people are affected more adversely than others when they get COVID.
2: Yeah, it's a very interesting study. And actually, I thought myself for quite a long time, are the people that do very badly from COVID also the same people that genetically seem to do badly from actually taking the vaccine? Mm. Um that's not clear really from this study, but it's interesting, it does explain maybe some of the differences we see between various ethnic groups. Yes. So I think the, the South Asian community, about 60% was found to have this um this particular gene. Mm. Um whereas in um Caucasians, sort of, you know, white people, it was about 15%. And in the Afro-Caribbean community, interestingly, only 2%. Yes. So it's not the whole explanation. I think probably much more important is your age. If you're 80, you're about 1,000 times more risk of COVID than if you're eight. Mm. If you've got comorbidities, and I think the average number of comorbidities now for a person that dies of COVID is about five comorbidities. Mm. Um or if you're very overweight, is the other thing which often isn't talked about very no. much. So there are things we can do to protect ourselves. Actually, uh, this winter I would I would implore people to start to take vitamin D, vitamin C, some zinc. There are lots of studies from very very early on in this pandemic that show, particularly people low of vitamin D. Mm. It's much, much worse from COVID, and it's very simple to just take that tablet once a day. You just buy it from the pharmacies, cheap as chips.
0: Yeah, absolutely right. Because the thing that I find interesting about this as well uh, is that we do need more information and have always needed more information from the government. Because when they say, for example, that infection rates have gone up, they never really explain that those are just actually positive tests and we're still testing loads of people. When they talk about hospitalizations going up, they never tell us who it is that's being hospitalised. They never tell us who it is that's dying, if the numbers rise or fall. And I think that's quite relevant, isn't it?
2: I think the more transparent you can be and the more information you can give people, they can make intelligent choices. Mm. So, for instance, for the last 10 days, most of the media have been talking about cases still going up. Right. And you're quite right, they're not cases, they're positive tests. But they've been coming down. Yes. Um, Not going up. Deaths are still going up because deaths lag the cases by about four weeks Mm. so in about another two and a half weeks we should start to see the deaths coming down and there are a number of studies now and a number of people that make predictions i say these people make much better predictions than sage ever do Mm. which perhaps wouldn't be that difficult but a lot of these people now that have been very accurate in their predictions are all saying that cases are going to continue to fall now Right through to the end of December. Yes. So I think we can be quite safe that Christmas, we can have a proper
0: Christmas. Well, let's hope so. Um, because at the moment, we've got uh, a Tory government that's kind of being battered and bruised from one week to the next. You know, one week they're talking about... Uh, taxing us a load more and then they're talking about saving the planet now they're engulfed in a sleaze row so i mean i do always wonder whenever they get engulfed in anything like that they'll come out with some massive story in order to kind of take us all away from it and look the other way but i mean looking at this um uh, gene uh, that they've discovered i find it fascinating that it says here that the way the lungs respond to infection um changes depending on the person's background if you're from the south asian part of the world 60 percent of people are affected by covid as opposed to 15 percent uh, of white europeans so uh, it tells you why they had such a problem in india uh, if you remember the indian variant was the first variant that we really had apart from the kent variant and then we didn't call it the indian variant anymore but it seems that we should keep calling it that because actually um, it's quite relevant because it does affect more people in that part of the world actually see when you look at the um all
2: the stuff in the media when india had got a high number of cases yeah um it had huge numbers because it's got a massive population but actually the percentage was tiny Mm. much smaller than any european country yeah and as soon as things calmed down in india and the very few people vaccinated in India, mm. a lot of that was by using repurposed medications, yeah. including something called Ivermectin, which we often not, is, isn't discussed enough really in this country. Yeah. But once things calm down in India, you hear nothing about India.
0: No. Because I know, I mean, they were if, leading to... Well, do you remember the BBC when they started to wane in this country? They suddenly were leading the news with what was going on in India. And they were carrying all these put- pictures and, and video footage uh, of people sort of lying in the street outside hospitals. You know, I've never seen so many uh, reporters in India in my life.
2: Yes, absolutely. Mm. No, I think they, they're always looking for the worst news instead of positive things. And actually, there's lots of positive things at the moment. The cases are dropping um, very soon. About already 95% of kids are immune. Yeah. Um, so we should not be continuing to vaccinate children. It's not necessary. Um, it's that that drop in cases is now going up through the age range. Mm. The only people that cases are still going up slightly is the very, very elderly. But that will all start to drop in the next few weeks as well. Yes. And then the hospital admissions will start to drop and then the deaths will start to
0: drop. But I don't know what it is about the way that the NHS wants us to believe that things are still bad. You know, the, we hear from Parliament uh, this week that, you know, many of the Conservative benches had people more wearing masks than they were the previous week because somehow Sajid Javid told them to. Uh, and then they started saying, well, we maybe we should send people to, uh, to work from home uh, because it's a very dangerous environment here. So they're sort of trying to give out this message that things are a lot worse than they are. I had a doctor on this week um, who basically told me um, the wrong figures of how many people were in hospital. How many people were in ICUs? He was trying to make out that there was an awful lot of pregnant women uh, who hadn't, had, hadn't been vaccinated in uh, ICU that. units, right? And it turned out he got it wrong by a factor of ten. He was claiming there yeah. were two thousand of them. It turned out there were less than two hundred of them.
2: Yeah. What's well, that about?
0: Somebody, Well, somebody was telling a colleague was telling me
2: that they couldn't get their patients in to operate on at a large London teaching hospital with seventy-five ITU beds because it was all full of unvaccinated patients mm. taking up all the beds in ITU. Right. So then I looked at the figures on the government dashboard. And in fact, what that said, there may have been a few days out of date, but that said there were three patients in that hospital with COVID on ventilated beds. Right. That was no one here. So then I, t- I pulled him up on it and asked him about it again. And he said, well, no, actually the ITU is full of patients that should have been treated Twelve months ago, that are now much more complicated and are taking longer to sort out, mm. and they've got more severe disease. Right. And the other problem that hospitals are having, and is going to rapidly get worse, is they can't discharge patients to care homes because of these mandatory vaccines in care homes. Yes, and they're talking about bringing that in for the NHS, but strangely enough, not until the spring. Um, and in fact, I've got a petition on my Twitter to say we should not be mandating any vaccines by any employers it should be a personal medical choice and um, I've I've put that on today if people want to have a look
0: okay we'll send people there I'll retweet that for you because I'm I'm quite surprised I was talking to uh, Sebastian Gawker about this yesterday how frequently this is happening in America you know which is meant to be the land of the free but an awful lot of organizations both private and public sector are demanding that people are vaccinated to keep their jobs
2: but there have also now been some recent both court cases in the United States that have put some of those things on hold. And some states themselves, the governors, have uh, are passing legislation yeah. to disallow what uh, President Biden has passed, that people should be band to be vaccinated. Mm. So I think it hopefully will still be the land of the free, but it's going to just start off with certain states. Yes. But I think when certain states in the United States look at the states that are being more, I would call, more sensible about this and their figures are going well, I think there will be a clamour from the population in the other states to do the same. New York is in big, big trouble. Yes. Because they've sacked a whole load of policemen, firemen, health service workers, Um. They're going to have to reverse that decision.
0: Yes. Well, I think they will. And I'd like to see that because what I don't want to see uh, is people in this country looking elsewhere and going, oh, well, it works over there. Look what they're doing. You know, that's all fine. Because one of the things I noticed over the last month or so uh, is I think it's SAS, the airline from Scandinavia. They're not even requiring you to wear a mask on a plane now. So that's the way they're going. So, you know, I would like to see us moving closer into that particular direction.
2: Well, I think the Scandinavian countries have been more sensible throughout And, for instance, if we look at the figures for Sweden, Sweden's figures relative to everywhere else are looking better and better by the week. Mm. And uh, at least that gives us... When this proper inquiry eventually comes in this country, um, Sweden is obviously one of the things that should be considered. And in the most recent parliamentary report, it wasn't mentioned. It wasn't even... Um, there was a map of Europe with lots of countries labelled. Sweden wasn't even labelled. And no. It didn't exist.
0: No, absolutely unbelievable, isn't it? And going back just to the children's vaccination programme, because that would appear to be still going ahead, even though not that many kids are actually volunteering for it, as far as I yeah. can see. Um, one of the reasons I'd want to know about what sort of, you know, reasons for not vaccinating your children might be is because we need to know more about what effects the vaccination has on certain kids, depending on what illnesses they've had in the past. And, and the, the, well, there are, there are two current
2: issues, I would say, about kids' vaccinations. The first is so many children now are already immune. There is no point in vaccinating people, yeah. whether they are children or adults, that are already immune. We don't do it for any other disease. People call me out on this and they say, oh, well, you as a surgeon, you have to have a hepatitis B vaccination. And my answer to that is, no, actually, I don't, Mm. because I've already got high hepatitis B antibodies from a vaccination years ago. And I no longer need to have any
0: injections for that. So that's again so that's another sense. well that's another false narrative isn't it because that's another one that they come out with all the time and so well doctors always have to be vaccinated against certain things but it's not the no, same it's not the same and the second thing is we can see
2: more and more from the united states that there are issues with these vaccines the younger you are the worse the risks mm. but also the less you need the vaccine so yeah. you, you get to a particular age where the risk-benefit changes. And certainly anyone below 18, I would say, doesn't need the vaccine. Um, And we know nothing about what the long-term consequences, particularly with children, their bodies are still growing and still changing. We don't know what, what consequences there might be in five years or 10 years' time. Mm. because it's a very new vaccine
0: that's right and what's your take tony on what i've been noticing some somewhat over the course of the last few weeks is people who are getting a booster are having a bad um sort of side effect from it some think it's because it's a different type of um vaccine it's a pfizer vaccine as opposed to the AstraZeneca one but i've I've spoken to a few people now who said that they had a really bad reaction to it um despite not really having a bad reaction to the first two
2: yeah it's it's very variable my dad's 88, and he had two AstraZeneca's for his first two vaccines. And about two weeks ago, he had his Pfizer for his booster. Mm. Um, He's getting on, he's got a few medical conditions, and I think probably on balance that was the right decision for him to take. Um, But he was a little bit sort of off colour for a couple of days, Mm. but now he seems fine. But I also have people that have told me, particularly people that I work with, that have been having their booster. A lot have been off for at least a couple of days. Mm. Some have been off for a week. And quite a few um, ladies in their sort of late 50s have told me that they're on HRT. They've had no uh, sort of periods for years. They've had the vaccine. They felt terrible and they've started bleeding again. Yeah. So there are odd things that go
0: on. Yes. Um, and and, again, I all I, all, and again, all I ask for the government to do is to be transparent about it and to explain it and to say, look, this is possible. This might happen. This has happened. And this is why, because without that, people can't really make any kind of choice at all. I mean, they used to talk about, you know, children making a, um, an informed decision. Well, you can't make an informed decision unless you've got all the details of what you need to know. No, but my, my, my
2: main long-term concern about this vaccine is particularly in children and people that I would say don't need the vaccine, mm. is that always in the UK, we've had a fantastic vaccine programme. There's been an extremely high uptake and the, the, the public have trusted the medical profession mm. about vaccines. And I think this these current problems going on could destroy that trust. And what we don't want to see is children coming through not getting their polio vaccine, their measles vaccine, because those are diseases that can really mm. badly affect children. Yes. And if the vaccination rates for those drop, um, that would be just awful.
0: Yes. No, I totally take your point. Dr. Tony Hinton, as ever, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Uh, He's been a surgeon uh, with over 30 years experience, of course. Uh, He knows a thing or two uh, about being vaccinated. And of course, uh, interestingly there, he just blew apart that myth that you will be told by some people in the NHS. Oh, doctors are always getting vaccinated against all sorts of things. Well, maybe not. After all, uh, we know sometimes more than they're telling us. We've got something more important to talk to you about right now, and it is, of course, to do with the BBC. The BBC uh, is an organisation that you will hear an awful lot about on this radio station. There's a reason for that, because an awful lot of people think the BBC is not worth the money uh, that they ask us to spend on it, that it's not worth the licence fee. There's plenty of people who think that paying a licence fee is wrong, is outdated, outmoded, and is a very, very ridiculously antiquated way uh, of somehow subsidising the national broadcaster, right? I've often railed on about how many ridiculously uh, number of small radio stations they've got up and down the country. 64, I think it is, at last count. They've got 10 television channels. Uh, they've got uh, the online business. They've got all these different offshore companies that they run. They've got all the little sort of prop departments over here. They've got a BBC commercial over there. Well, guess what, right? We've discovered today, thanks to The Sun, an exclusive in The Sun, uh, the BBC bosses spent nearly £3,000 a day chasing license fee dodgers, people who hadn't paid... Their license, right now, that in total has cost 9.25 million pounds. You know how many letters they sent out 34 million, 34 million, which works out right at 111,959 enforcement notes for every working day of the year. So, the BBC has spent I don't know how much um, money in man hours. But 34 million letters being sent out to people, many of whom, of course, uh, will be elderly, many of whom will have not paid their license fee because they can't afford it. Some of them won't have paid it because they're over 75 and they weren't uh, at the last count supposed to be paying for it. Now they've decided to charge them anyway. So the Freedom of Information request that the Sun did said that if they had spent this money on actually giving out free licenses, they could have given out free licenses to 58,000 people times 159 quid. So it really is quite extraordinary. And apparently Tim Davey, the new director general, has said actually they might send out more letters next year because they want to clamp down on some of the over 75s, the miscreants, those terrible old people who can't afford to pay for the licence fee, who have only really got the BBC to watch and ITV. It's an outmoded system. It's wrong. They're wasting our money. Nine and a quarter million pounds they've spent just on writing letters to people. The BBC is antiquated, it's old-fashioned, it should be put out of its misery. Let's form it into some kind of pay-per-view situation. Let's get rid of the, uh, the licence fee. Let's stop hounding old people for money. Quite frankly, that is the act of a charlatan and somebody who is a disgrace. And that is quite frankly what the BBC has become. This is Talk Radio. <laughs> Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We've got lots more to do. We've got plenty coming up in the next hour or so. We're going to be talking about the courts and how they're failing not only the people who are victims of crime but also failing the police service as well. We'll get to that very shortly. But right now we're going to do a new feature on the show in association with the Veterans Rail Card. It's called Touching Base. And as we approach Armistice Day next Thursday and Remembrance Day, of course, next Sunday, November the 14th, I'll be speaking to veterans about their time in service and the impact it has had on their lives. And today, uh, I'm delighted to say we're welcoming into the studio, I think for the first time, Rob Clark, uh, Defence Policy Associate at the Henry Jackson Society, and of course, the veteran as well. Rob, welcome. Thank you for coming in.
3: No, My pleasure, Mark. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks very much indeed. Just come a little bit closer to the microphone so we can hear your pearls of wisdom. Now, uh, the Veterans Rail Card obviously is something which we're introducing to people. Anyone can get one, as we've even done one day in the armed services, which means you can get a sort of discount on travel around the country on the on the railway so so we think it's a pretty good thing to do tell us about your uh, your time in the uh, in the services um, well I mean first of all just to go
3: back to the forces uh, the veterans rail card yeah what I think this is actually really good for is the, the younger generation uh, you mentioned it's uh, available for people who have just done one day in service obviously yeah. the majority of people don't just do one day right. um, the average is sort of four to six years people mm. leave quite early in their life so 20, 22, 23, 24 years old right. um, so it's the ability to get those people back into you know society back, mm. uh, integrate them back into work and the ability to actually have that social mobility with uh, reduced trail, uh, train and welfare yeah. uh, it's a brilliant initiative and um, you know my appreciation on behalf of veterans for for supporting it yes because um, i mean
0: veterans we talk about quite a lot on this show just because we know uh, that many of them don't have great experiences after they leave uh, the armed services and, and and we've had issues with uh, the guys in northern ireland and some of those prosecutions we've talked to johnny mercer about some of the things that, that go on as well um but tell us about uh, about your experience and, and when you were in the services um so i mean i left uh, i left about five or six years ago now i did
3: just under 10 years in the infantry, um, so I was based in Germany, Cyprus, um, deployed various overseas exercises, and to Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I had quite a good experience, though, in terms of the the transition. I think it's really important, uh, particularly this time of year, to highlight the uh, the inequalities and the difficulties veterans face. It's the transition from military service, whether it's the army, uh, air force, or the navy, mm. um, and then into uh, civilian society. You know, a lot of these bit I had uh, very little contact with. Uh, civilian friends or family for ten years, like mm. my entire twenties. If I wasn't fighting in Iraq or Afghanistan, I was uh, abroad training for those missions. Yeah. Um. So it's a huge disconnect between people in their young to mid twenties when they leave, um, and then the ability to integrate back into society. Yes. Um. I had quite a positive experience. Um. The army, for example, gave me a second opportunity at education. Um. I actually started university at eighteen. Mm. Uh. I was in a. I was in a very good school. I had a very privileged upbringing in that sense, but it was. F- expected that everyone would go into education right. and carry on down that way. There was very little opportunities for anything else. Right. I knew I was going to go into the army when I finished university, but when I was 18, I didn't really appreciate the opportunity. Right. I was quite immature. I didn't mm. identify as a student and I was desperate to join the army. Right. Um, and was that because of a family connection? No, uh, nobody Nobody really. Um, I had a, a great-grandfather who served in World War One and survived, um, and another, uh, another relation who did national service, but immediate family, no. Mm. It was... Um, I didn't have a great experience uh, with, with childhood the army was a, a sense of identity that I really wanted to have Okay. Um, so I left university quite young or quite early um, and I was in Iraq uh, six months later no. and it was the best decision I ever made in my life when I left the army though this is the transition that I'm talking about so the military offer uh, credits and forms of education and training uh, to reskill you know, reskill and uh, get back right. into a civilian environment. Um, and because I'd already done A-levels and I'd already been in service uh, a relatively decent amount of time, they basically put me through university mm. um, and it's afforded me the position I'm in today. Right. Um, so I'm quite lucky, but there's a lot of uh, missed opportunities for people who don't even necessarily know about this um, or, for example, some of the um, course providers um, aren't uh, eligible yeah. uh, for you know for for, for the courses and right. for the education, so that needs to be broadened. Mm. So it's not just about trying to get service leavers back into. Uh, social mobility and integrating into civilian life for example with the veterans rail guard it's about making uh, industry more aware and trying to have more partnerships
0: through government and industry to give those opportunities for people Um, well it does strike me for example at the moment we're hearing about the shortage of workers in all kinds of fields whether it's Mm. HGV drivers whether it's you know uh, people to work in, in 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 farms or people to work in butchers and all sorts of things and i'm not saying that obviously there would be uh you know all sorts of job opportunities for anyone coming out of the forces but you would think that if that was the case and people were being prepared to come back into civilian life, that you might as well give them a skill that they can use or maybe even give them a skill that they know they can get a job in. No, absolutely. Uh, the HTV crisis is
3: a really good one point. Obviously, I mean, the government, to be fair, the government have known um, there was going to be almost a mass exodus of European uh, drivers, skilled drivers mm. um, with Brexit. Um, in terms of trying to get uh, service leavers, you know, there's there's several thousand uh, British military personnel who have um, Class 2 HGV job yeah. licences for example. Right. Um, so in order to get them reskilled into a civilian uh, market, a civilian environment, that could be a quick fix solution and so far the government haven't really done
0: much. Well it could because also I don't think, I mean obviously there, there is an aspect of Brexit to blame for it but there's also an aspect of the DVLA not really working properly uh, there's also an aspect of the tax changes that people have been suffering from because IR35 has been brought in and I I've been told by an awful lot of truck drivers that they've just given up mm. being what they would regard themselves as kind of individual freelance HGV drivers because the, the tax that they were going to have to pay was going to make it just not worthwhile for them. So there's, there's a lot more to it, you know, than, than just saying, oh, well, loads of people went away because they went back to Europe. But I'm told also a lot of people um, who were in the EU took some furlough money. Uh, and, and, and many of them actually formed companies and got the money from the government and went disappeared off back to, 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 the, to their country of, of, of their birth and are, are never going to pay the money back. And so, you know, all of that feeds into the same kind of thing, doesn't it? So when you're in uh, the forces in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, I mean, for those of us who, who don't know much about that, because, I mean, I've been in one war zone in my life and that was in Bosnia. Um, you know, it's hard for people to imagine what it's like. I mean, is it frightening? Is it scary? Do you feel like your life is at risk every minute of the day? Um, yeah,
3: sure. The It's very difficult to describe to people who haven't been in the situation because it's, you know, how do you relate to that, that mm. experience? People see it on the news, they see, you know, films and, and TV programmes and uh, social media. Um, but in terms of the, uh, just to highlight the fear factor, uh, I think everyone's scared. Um, Afghanistan especially, um, in terms of, the IED threat, so the roadside bombs, the improvised explosive yeah. devices. Um, you know, it was almost every 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 step you took was was a chance that you were going to step yeah. on uh, an IED. Um, so that was. And uh, what does that
0: do to your sort of psyche? Do you just have uh, to put it to the back of your mind?
3: Yeah, I mean, um, yes and no. You have to, you, you can't concentrate on it too much because it'll just drive you crazy mm. and paranoid, and that yeah. does affect people. Um, but in order to Harness and channel that fear uh, and that adrenaline, and actually sharpen your senses. And after a period of time, you become quite attuned to your surroundings. Mm. Especially if you're in the same location, you're dealing with the people. Yeah. Um, you see that pattern of life. So it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, and in between those periods of intense fear and mania, are mm. also the best, uh, the best experiences I've ever had in my life. Yes, and people that you meet, you you remain in touch with. Oh, absolutely. Um, I actually put. Um, when I knew I was coming on today, I actually uh, I reached out on, on my social media to, to people and if they had any issues they'd like highlighting or um, anything like that. And that's, that's one thing that I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunities that yeah. I have now with my current work is I, I, I can have that platform for not just myself and, and my experiences, mm. but more importantly, people who have yeah. had far worse experiences than me. Um, and a couple of people reached out who I haven't spoken to, um, shamefully on my part, for a, a, some, some of them a, a couple of years even, yeah. uh, and hearing their stories and their accounts, Um, And it just brings back just how close those relationships Mm. are. Um, The military, whatever branch, in that sense, you really do form those those uh, almost unshakable bonds and friendships
0: that you can't really replicate elsewhere. Sure. And what did they say they wanted you to bring up or to talk about if you had the opportunity to do so? Yeah,
3: I mean, there was a few uh, private details that I said obviously I wouldn't include uh, names and and locations, for example. But one theme that came, um, uh, one theme that was apparent actually across a few people was the the lack of. Um, so we have these big initiatives mm. veterans rail cards um, you know uh, you know forces mental health and, and suicide awareness and things like that are, yeah. are all well and good and they're fantastic but in terms of uh, at a council level um, so for example for councils to be able to um, almost uh, not look favorably upon people uh, who are served like veterans but in terms of a lot of them actually actively um, I wouldn't say ignore, but choose to mm. sort of put them on the sidelines um, for whatever reason. So I had several people, it wasn't just one or two cases, it was actually about seven or eight. Mm. Um, so for example, when they needed issues with, with housing uh, or, or, or benefits, um, they were often um, at the back of the queue. Um, and it was seen almost that almost like negative discrimination because they'd served, because yes. they must have a loving family. They must have that yes. support network. They don't need council or, or, or you know, the, the local level um, support. And that's actually not, absolutely not the case. Mm and the important thing about this to highlight is when people do feel ignored or neglected that's what drives people especially veterans to things like alcoholism drug addiction uh, homelessness uh, suicide Um, and just one thing I came across today actually uh, and this is really important I've actually signed up to myself the Samaritans um, have a new veterans app okay. um, it's actually really good and they um, one of the things they've been doing with the Royal British Legion they've been conducting research into how to negate and mitigate veteran suicide um, and this app's actually incredibly good, I had a play with it on the train uh, up here this morning um, they've got really good interactive forums uh, local signposting, so like regional areas where people can uh, go to help, uh, you know, south east mm. or north east whichever um, and they did some research like so the Royal British Legion they found that about uh, 40% of veterans who contacted Samaritans uh, are at suicidal risk. Um, it's over double the general population. Yeah. Um, so these are all important issues that aren't going away. And increasingly now, with the, uh, the the withdrawal of Afghanistan, I can put the withdrawal of Afghanistan into a greater sort of strategic context because yes. it's, it's my job. But a lot of veterans who served in Afghanistan and had worse experiences than I did, for example, lost limbs uh, or, or lost incredibly mm. close friends. Um, the whole process of Afghanistan from this summer, a lot of people have forgotten about it, but those veterans haven't. Over 100,000 uh, soldiers alone mm. served in Afghanistan um, in quite harrowing uh, circumstances. And the idea that they've just been completely forgotten about, it's almost going to be, my worries, it's going to be a forgotten generation almost. Yes. We're going to move past Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, the, the global war on terror. Um, we've, we've left nation building. We're tilting towards the Indo-Pacific. Um, and all of a sudden, we're going to have this um, you know, generation of 30-somethings who, who, who gave a lot in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and all, all, all but almost forgotten yeah. about. That's my worry.
0: And that's the thing that Johnny Mercer was worried about too, because he was mm. hopeful when he became Veterans Minister that you know there would be some things that could be done, uh, because that's what the government promised. And a lot of those mm. things still haven't really kind of come through at the other end of the pipe. So housing is a big problem, isn't it? So, what could they do? to make that better the government i mean because we can we can talk to them and say look why don't you do this mm. so for example the housing minister was contacted a lot last year uh, and worked quite closely with the veterans of ministers
3: affairs with johnny mercer um like it's really important to distinguish this isn't about giving veterans preferential treatment it's no. about it's about treating them sort of like with the dignity that they deserve yeah um so like i say quite often um uh, one chap i was talking to yesterday he was uh, it was i think stevenage um so uh, Bedfordshire, I believe, yeah. uh, council Hertfordshire um either way and uh he was uh, rejected from the building um purely because when it got into it didn't get heated but it didn't go the, the outcome wasn't the way he expected mm. and i've known this guy for over 10 years um and he's not an angry person but because he was labeled as a veteran uh they they had to call security he was forced to be removed without actually referring like his case any mm. further um so in terms of housing um one of the big things is when people leave the military is obviously housing straight away you know you're quite often based Miles and miles away from yes. where you're from originally. Right. I'm from Lincoln originally. Yeah. the closest I was base was. So do you go back there? And where do you go? Well, I went back to Nottingham. I right. would moved to Nottingham mm. uh, uh, to be closer to family. Um, about two years before I left the army, anyway. But lots of people, you know, uh, if they're you know in Scotland or Wales, and they've been based, you know, I was based in Germany, Cyprus, yeah. you know. Um, so it's the idea to actually integrate back into a society. So, for example, at the lo- local local level, getting the local. Uh, local council uh making those uh those petitions to get to those forms rolling well before somebody leaves service mm. it's no good uh leaving leaving service after 10 15 20 years and then rolling up to your, your you know back to a local area and you will found that you're you know there's such a long uh such a long queue and like i say people are often just sort of discarded and left because they think that are you know they're a veteran or they've been in the military they've already got that support mm. and quite often they don't
0: no Absolutely right. Stay with us, Rob, if you can, because uh, we've got more to talk to you about, more to ask you about. We're with the Veterans Railcard here, of course. You can get one if you've done any time whatsoever uh, in the armed services, uh, even one day. Uh, you go to railcard.co.uk and find it there. Uh, this is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is Talk Radio.
1: Across the UK. Online on DAB Plus
0: And on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. We're talking to Rob Clark, uh, who's Defence Policy Associate at the Henry Jackson Society. We've been talking Rob about, you know, the experience of people in uh, the armed forces. So when you did come out, um, did you find it relatively easy to, to to sort of assimilate back into civilian society? Uh, I I smile and smoke because there was one or two instances which probably aren't uh,
3: relatable on here. <laughs> um, but uh, So I went straight into education, uh, into, back into higher
0: high education, to university. I went to uh, Nottingham Trenton University. So that must have been an interesting thing to do once you'd already been where you'd been. So you were probably a bit older as well. Yeah, exactly. Most I mean, people. Yeah, I started when I was
3: 29 years old back right. at uni. Um, and I was in lectures with like 18 year old kids. And it was really difficult to sort of have any kind of yeah. commonality with them. And how did um, they react to you? Yeah, some of I didn't them were really
0: of a baby killer. Or
3: yeah, I got I got yeah, I got some of that, but you know, not not, not a lot. Um I got a bit of hostility, mm. a bit of awkwardness. But by and large, they um they kind of I almost say they looked up to me, because that's 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 a bit much. But they they sort of they checked me with the respect that, yeah. that I thought was quite nice. Um actually thankfully I met uh, somebody who's a very close friend of mine now who was also uh, a fellow uh, veteran and he was on the same course as I and uh, he and I have become very good friends. Right. Um so you do you do kind of bounce into it. But uh, no, it was a great experience, um, but I was quite lucky. And when I, was still, when I started university, I was technically still in the army full-time. I was doing it on my uh, resettlement mm. the period, the transition. Um, but like I mentioned earlier, you hear so many stories, so many stories of people um, winging it, not really knowing what they're going to do, not being signposted, yeah. um, and not having that support from the chain of command when they're leaving. So then when they do leave, and they go back to either, say, broken families mm. or... Um, uh, you know an environment they've not been around for like ten fifteen years um and then they feel like they're being abandoned by like social housing by the local government um you know jobs market things like this um That's when you know issues really really arise mm. and it's not so much from their experiences in the army PTSD or negative um experiences it's 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 this transition phase which is so so crucial you're so vulnerable in mm. that period because you have this almost identity crisis i did um i mean almost now i have i have this you know I've been out for five five six years now um and i've gone on to do fantastic things in the last few years um things that i'm really proud of but i'll never again have that identity as as a soldier uh, as an infantryer mm. um you know did i make a, bit, a difference in iraq or afghanistan at the time on the ground yes occasionally yeah. and you can hold those tangible experiences really close and you're like i did something of worth and yeah. i had i had value even if it was very small on a daily basis and then you leave that behind Mm. and again if people go back and they don't have that transition successfully they have you know a broken home or or or, or family problems they can't get a job um then they you know
0: you're asking for an absolute it's just it's a recipe for disaster and it's so sad to say it really is and it would be good for the government to do more Uh, we'll try and see whether we can push them on that um what are you working on at the moment before we say cheerio rob um, so uh, I'm still at Henry Jackson Society
3: uh, Defence Policy Associate. So I do some defence media for them um, I do the odd research papers and policy papers I did one this summer on the, the Ajax right. uh, vehicle uh, The procurement uh, disaster to
0: be fair from the, the MOD um, Yeah this is a thing that they've been writing about recently isn't it That, that, that has been to- had so much money wasted
3: Yeah I mean it had a 5.5 billion budget They've spent almost four
0: of that yeah.
3: It's four years over delayed. They've got 12 vehicles to show for it None of which have passed the initial operating capability Incredible. So, it's, there's no, every- so what's gone wrong with that? Uh, I mean there's a whole host of reasons one of the one of the main reasons just to put it really simply um, the the first batch of 100 were made in Spain mm. and the manufacturing process in Spain was absolutely chaotic so the welding uh, was done by hand it wasn't done by, uh, by by proper machinery let alone by uk standards um, so quite often the holes and the, the turrets would be different sizes different proportions that resulted in the vibration yeah. and the, uh, the, the the shock factor right. and the the the, um, the noise issues right. which have led to about 300 personnel now needing medical treatment
0: dear me It just is awful, isn't it? Absolutely horrendous. Well, listen, thank you very much, indeed for coming in. Rob Clark, Defence Policy Associate at the Henry Jackson Society. Uh, There will be another veterans interview on Monday as we count down to Armistice Day next Thursday, and remember Sunday on November the 14th, in association with the Veterans Railcard, If you've served at least a day in the armed forces, you could save a third on rail travel. Just visit railcard.co.uk.